Hey, listener of these audio files we call the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. I'm in the middle of a few projects right now, so I'm not starting a new season of the podcast quite yet. However, one of the things I've been doing recently, which is to attempt to ramp up my weekly publishing newsletter game, would probably work well for a few episodes here. So I'll include a few, hopefully, to help people like you continue to approach and reapproach theology and psychology and ecclesiology, yes, all the ologies, but I'll also put them here to help you know that you can access this writing and more when you sign up for my newsletter. The newsletter is published weekly, well, almost every week, at Substack and Patreon. And it's true, you guys can get in on some of it for free, although to get the most out of it, you'll be invited to give a few dollars a month. And let me tell you a little bit about this newsletter. Currently, I'm not aware of too many, actually, I'm not aware of any people out there doing quite exactly what I'm doing. I'm writing and providing audio. That's right, you can get the audio right from Substack or Patreon. And each post, I'm adding a few hand-slash-computer-drawn sketches, because that's what my drawings are, they're hand-slash-computer-drawn. It's all three of these things together in kind of a unique, interesting way. Someone commented once that I write about serious stuff with a writing style that never takes itself too seriously. Immediately, I knew that I liked that. I knew that that was something I was aspiring to. So hopefully, the newsletter is doing just that. Serious writing that never takes itself too seriously. So jump on in on the publication. Hundreds of others have done so, which is, yes, my way of introducing just the slightest bit of mimetic influence to the whole invitation. (laughs) as if I'm only slightly mimetic. The easiest way to sign up is to go to jonathanfosteronline.com. Right there in the middle of the page, you can sign up for my Substack publication or go to the top right-hand corner and click on the Patreon link. Either way, you'll get it from both platforms. Okay, enough of that. Let's get to this week's publication. It's entitled, Number 6, Show Me What I'm Looking For. Is There Truth to Build Upon? been banging my head against truth recently, wrestling with its Teflon-like exterior, trying to pin its jelly edges against the schematic of theology I've got going on inside my head. Back corner of my hippocampus, maybe? I don't know. I imagine a room with a single bulb gently swaying, casting various shades of understanding up on the walls that are all marked up with drawings and diagrams and measurements. Yeah, that's what I got going on. I get truth in there. I finesse it within what's already happening. Or maybe truth is already in there, and my job's to vet it. You know, run it through exercises, sequences, different programs to confirm its strength. Either way, it's challenging. But I keep after it because I have questions. And I know a lot of folks in my circle have questions. Oh, and also, I guess I should say I don't even know all the reasons I keep after it. Maybe I'm just hoping people will notice me and I can sell a few more books and not have to get a real job. Maybe I just want to be well-known or something. Reminds me of the poet David Budville, who sums up a lot of what I think is going on inside of my head when he said, I want to be famous so I can be modest about being famous. Oh well, at least now you know what you're getting into here. Meanwhile, I'm not ready to disavow the veracity of truth altogether. But the questions loom large. How far is one supposed to go in reimagining their faith? What is strength and power? Is it possible to orient our lives around something dependable 
If truth has been deconstructed, how does one know what to build upon? I think I believe in truth, but only the kind I've been excavating in recent publications, a truth that leads me to beauty, its non-shaming patient presence, its flexibility, like the wolf spider, etc. By the way, that last metaphor, the wolf spider, it spun me off doing cartoon sketches on spiders and sheep for a few days, but I've managed to pull it together. But truth work, let's be honest, is wild. We all create meaning based on particular ways of processing, thinking, living, and trying to make sense of our life. Whatever we land upon, whatever kind of makes sense to us, well, we name it as truth. And this isn't bad. It helps us. It's good to acknowledge that certain ways of truth have helped us create meaning. But I'm convinced that for humanity to move forward, we must create room for new truths to unfold. Yeah, like I said, wild. Because the new and the old aren't always in agreement. What I've been hoping to do is to help demonstrate ways we can, well, domesticate at least, some of the process. The problem, of course, is that to get there, one must go further into the wildness. I love the line from John Muir, that pioneering environmentalist from the Pacific Northwest, who was surely not talking only about physical things when he said, wildness is a necessity. So today we're esteeming the journey and admitting it can feel wild to take a route other than those supposedly polarized routes marked out for us by the traditionally religious and traditionally irreligious. The view of the irreligious. I start with the path of the irreligious and their cynicism about truth. It has led more than one skeptic to claim that truth no longer exists. But come on, this just doesn't make sense. To make the truth claim that truth doesn't exist? I hope you can see the inherent problem there. Even if it were true, even if we all agreed that there is no truth, it doesn't keep the irreligious from searching for such treasure. This is something that Scott Galloway writes about in The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. He sees each of these companies as tapping into our need to discover meaning. I learned about Galloway's insight in Luke Burgess's excellent book, Wanting. I appreciate the insight into what I might call these secular deities. Google, the one we turn to for answers. Amazon, the one that provides security, allowing us immediate access to whatever we need. Facebook, the one capable of fulfilling our longing for community. Apple is a little bit harder to identify. Though once you begin to think in terms of mimetic desire, it becomes apparent that Apple is intervolved with deep-seated notions of desire, signaling one's attractiveness, as Burgess says, as a mate by associating with a brand that is innovative, forward-thinking, and costly to own. I'm not trying to catch or shame anyone. I'm not even saying that the religious don't search for meaning in these secular ways either. Indeed, they or we do. I'm simply pointing out that the search for truth is alive and well, even amid the folks who say that truth is dead. But look, I don't blame people for continuing their search outside religious circles, because in so many instances, the church-sanctioned, so to speak, alternatives are just lifeless. The View of the Religious Where the skeptic eschews all kinds of religious searching and even denies the search exists itself, 
the religious say, nah, what we need to do is rededicate ourselves, you know, just double down on old beliefs, customs, traditions, creeds, and orthodox thinking. I don't have a particular problem with routine and tradition. I mean, humans need such things to survive and thrive. And I don't have a problem with the idea of orthodox thinking, i.e. right thinking. What I have a problem with is ritualizing my life around orthodox thinking when it's less about right thinking and more about our way of thinking. What our way of thinking, and good Lord, I could name a hundred things here, but let me stick with this one. What our way of thinking has given us is the idea that truth must be attached to a very large, strong, completely immovable, dare I say, impassable object. Of course, it follows that the largest, strongest, most immovable object is God. In other words, God is inflexible. Well, except for every once in a while when God decides to do something to help us, which is great, except we're not sure why he wouldn't do more. I mean, if he is the strongest, why or how could he have allowed the world to get to such a messed up place? Over the weekend, I spoke with a friend who put his own spin on the question. Tragically, his lifelong partner has developed mental health problems to the point of wanting to take their life. My friend, trying to do everything they know to do, i.e. giving more money to the church, praying more, reading the Bible more, you know, doubling down on the path of the traditionally religious, asks, why isn't God fixing this? I write about all of this in other places, but the question resonates with all of us. Why isn't God fixing this? Subgroups of religious folks are divided at this point, but often the response is that, well, yes, bad things happen, but one must trust God. He's going to fix it all eventually. Okay, but even if he could fix it all one day, what does that mean? Isn't it a little late for the indigenous peoples of America, the Africans thrown on slave ships, the families of the children shot in schools in recent days? All of this begs the question that the atheist has been asking for quite some time now. How could God be both good and in control? And this is why we don't blame the non-religious for searching for truth elsewhere. Thank God they're saying such things. It invites us to look at definitions of goodness, strength, and truth. It invites us to look at the kind of God we've been forcing upon the world. Evolution of Truth what I suspect is that there is truth. It's just different than we understood it to be because, well, for one reason, words, meaning, and contexts are constantly subject to change, and for other reasons that go beyond the scope of this post. The point is to be open to something beyond truth claims emanating from either camp. Honestly, these two groups aren't that different anyhow. They're not really polarized. Yeah, it's a faux polarization because they're basically talking about the same old thing. One says there's no controlling God, and the other says that there is a controlling God. What open and relational theology says is that there might be a God, but that he or she doesn't control, because control is antithetical to love. Love is consent, and consent is what lives at the heart of healthy relationships. Consensual love is stronger than non-consensual love. I mean, think about the phrase, non-consensual love. It doesn't even make sense. Non-consensual love isn't love. It's control. The good news 
is that relational love may exist in our world. And that, that part about relational love, well, that just might be the truth we're all searching for.